Hello, I'm your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 62, brought to you by acmescience.com. On this week's episode, I talked to mathematician Katie Steckles. We discuss how ER influenced her to study mathematics, just what the word mathematician encompasses, and what exactly a mathematician in residence actually does. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's show is a mathematician and a mathematical communicator, Katie Steckles. Welcome to Strongly Connected Components. Hello. So we've known each other for a while now and we've we've spoken a, a few times and I, I was very surprised when I was, I was going through some uh, things on the internet that I found about you while researching for this that I had not learned, learned this before. How did the TV show ER lead you to doing mathematics? (laughs) That's a really good question. So when I was in school, I was basically looking for something to do with my life. And I think like I was quite strong in a few different subjects. So I didn't really have a particular like subject that I wanted to go for. And I was watching a lot of ER at the time. And I thought, oh, maybe I could be a doctor. That would be really cool. And of course, watching ER gives you literally no concept of what it's actually like to be a doctor. (laughs) Certainly not in the UK as well. It's probably quite different being a doctor in the US than it is in the UK, even on top of that. So it was something I was thinking about. When I was choosing uh, what subjects to study at A-level, kind of age of 16, I basically picked my subjects to do medicine because I was thinking I was going to do medicine at that time. Uh, So I ended up doing chemistry, biology and maths you know, because those were the subjects recommended. Uh, And kind of during my A-levels, I basically realized that medicine was probably not the best idea. So like within a very short space of time, because I got a bit of realistic information about what it was actually like, I did a bit of work experience in a doctor's surgery, this, that, the other. And I I just sort of went off it a bit. But by that point, I'd already started doing A-level maths. And that is when maths starts to get really good. Um, So prior to that, you're kind of learning techniques, you're learning methods, you're learning bits of maths. But once you get to A level, you're really getting into the cool stuff like calculus and matrices and proof and all of that kind of thing is really starting to come through. And I was I just realized actually maths is really quite good. Maybe I'll do that. So that was literally how it happened. I I feel like my thought process was probably not that simple when I when I think back, it seems quite clear what happened. But (laughs) in reality, it was probably a bit more complicated than that. But that is basically the story. Uh, And then I mean, you you not only stuck uh, past A levels and went to study, you you have a PhD in in mathematics. So what uh, what I mean, since you said you were good at a bunch of different subjects, what about mathematics kept you in it? It's actually because when I went to to degree level, one of the main things that I was thinking about was that I still didn't know I wanted to do. And I thought maths was quite a sort of non-directional thing. Like, so if you do a degree in medicine, you're then basically going to be a doctor of whatever kind for, you know, however many years. And yeah, you maybe could move careers later on, but it was, you know, it's kind of put you on a track, whereas maths doesn't really point you at any one particular job. So that was one of the things that appealed to me. But while I was doing it, yeah, I just found it so 
brilliant and fascinating as a subject. Um, so I did a, an undergrad degree with a fourth year, so it became a master's degree in pure maths. And I was really getting into all of the different aspects of pure maths because you just don't even learn about these things until you get to uni. There, there are whole areas of maths, whole branches of the subject that you don't even know exist. So like topology, which is what I ended up doing, things like number theory you get like a little flavor of how number theory might work and you learn about prime numbers and stuff but there's this whole thing there's combinatorics and there's you know all of these different things uh, and it really just opened up for me and that was what kind of hooked me in 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 the little intro thing and, and this did come from the you know few seconds that we talked before i actually you know turned on the recording uh for the show uh, we i was trying to figure out what exactly to call you because you do all of these different types of mathematical communication, we will get into all of them. It's, it's quite an impressively long list of different things that you do. Uh, but you also got a PhD in mathematics. You have done mathematical research. And, and to me, like that, that alone is enough to consider you a, a mathematician. And I mean, I consider myself a mathematician and I'm much less of one than you are. But you mentioned that it's you don't always necessarily get the best uh, response to calling yourself a mathematician because you're not in a university, you're not actively doing research. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, where this, where you feel this kind of reaction comes from, or at least examples of when it's happened. I guess I've not, like, I've not specifically been shouted at by people, but I've <laughs> definitely heard people use, like, the, this this kind of standard attitude that a mathematician is a person currently researching maths, a person who professionally does mathematics for a living. And I guess it's a bit of a weird definition because there are so many jobs that people do where what you're essentially doing is maths. And that is outside of maths research. That's people who are working, you know, in, in engineering, doing different jobs, doing uh, kind of data data processing stuff, like all of this is basically maths. I think the reason that people might think that I can't call myself a mathematician is because what I do is essentially maths communication. And that is the thing that I get paid to do for a living. Um, and I know so Matt Parker, who I work with, was on TV recently talking about John Nash when he died. And he was credited, you know, they put a line underneath with who you are. Uh, he was credited as Matt Parker mathematician. And someone actually tweeted him and went, well, are you a mathematician? And I was oh. like, what? You know, because he's literally nothing else. Like all he does all day is talk <laughs> about maths and be enthusiastic about maths, get people interested in maths. And I think that is doing a service to maths in a way that, you know, a lot of people can only imagine. And like, I, I try and do that you know, I try and be a mathematician wherever I can. I especially like referring to myself as a mathematician when I go into a school and talk to kids, because if they see a person who is identifying themselves as a mathematician and who isn't maybe what they're expecting a mathematician to be like, that I think is a really positive thing that I can do. Just literally by standing there and existing, I'm providing them with an impression of what a mathematician is that is not what they were looking for. And I'm hoping that that will kind of shift people's perceptions a little bit because there is this stereotype of a mathematician as like a dude with a jacket on that sits in a room and, and works in a maths department. And, and I kind of feel like if I can gradually chip away at that stereotype, you know, each time I walk into a room and, and surprise someone a little bit, I definitely want to be identified as a mathematician when I do that, because otherwise I don't have that effect. Like if I go in, I'm like, hi, I'm here to talk about maths. That's a totally different thing. 
that that's one of the reasons I, I want to be a mathematician. And I do do maths. This is the thing. Whenever I see a maths thing that needs working out or someone suggests something or there's a puzzle or there's some kind of math problem or some real world thing that I can apply maths to, I'm straight on it. Like I've got a, a whiteboard in my house and I just write on it and on the glass and on the windows, just anywhere that I need to write stuff down. Uh, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about stuff. And I'm not saying I'm constantly doing maths, but my approach to everything is like a mathematician. And uh, like a, there was a piece I wrote a little while ago because I write for a website called The A Periodical, which I, I assume we'll talk about shortly anyway. But I, I wrote a piece because I was looking to get some new business cards made to hand out to people. And I wondered what to put on there. Can I put mathematician or do I need to put like maths communicator or something? Uh, and I kind of had a bit of a discussion with myself in my head about this. And I was thinking, you know, is the definition of a mathematician someone who researches maths for a living or is it just a person who approaches the world like a mathematician? You know, is that is it like a state of mind rather than a, a job or a profession or a title? Uh, and I think it is. I think it's a, a, a mathematician way of looking at the world qualifies you to be a mathematician. I'm, I'm a person who knows that mathematicians come in all different styles. I, I've talked to a lot of different mathematicians and every single person is, is different, but I still... Uh, like this, the stereotype is still in my head. Whenever I put on my tweed jacket, I really feel more like a mathematician. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned um, like that there are all of these other things that are essentially doing mathematics, engineering, data analysis, things like that. And you uh, working with a former collaborator of mine, uh, Peter Rowlett, on something called the Taking Maths Further podcast recently, which was a was a pretty good illustration of that. Could you tell my listeners a little bit more about uh, your podcast? Yeah, well, it, that was a hugely fun thing to do. I would, we were approached to kind of, because we've both done little bits of podcasting before. Peter's done uh, obviously previously podcasts with you and I've done various little bits of things. Uh, I used to do some student radio as well. So I had a little bit of experience and they basically said, you know, we're, it was a, an organization called the Further Math Support Program. Uh, so Further Maths is like extra maths you can do at A-level. And basically they want to encourage a lot of kids at school to think about doing further maths alongside their maths A-level because it gives them uh, a much better grounding for when they get to university. And if they go on to do any subject that involves maths, it's a really nice basis for that. Plus it's all the cool stuff, you know, it's all of the kind of proof and all the, all the things that I got really excited about when I was A-level. So they wanted us to do a set of podcasts and they had this idea that it would be about like people who use maths in their jobs, whether or not they've done further maths at A-level and, and whether that's been useful to them. So so uh, what we essentially did was we first of all call around all our friends, all the people that we know that we know do maths in their jobs, but that aren't necessarily just mathematicians. Uh, and then once we'd run out of friends, which was maybe five or six people, we kind of just emailed random people. Eventually, we ended up with a list of 20 uh, interviewees. And then we picked a, a topic within maths, something that is either covered at A level or maybe just isn't covered at all. And it, it's interesting and we want to talk about it. For each episode, we had about a 10 minute interview with the person. We had a little puzzle for people to have a go at. And we had kind of a, a bracket sort of introduction ending around that where me and Peter just chatted about some maths. And uh, the, the way that we played it was I was explaining some maths to Peter, although obviously he probably knew just as much, if not more about it than I did. Don't uh, don't give <laughs> Peter that much credit. Don't, you were explaining it to him. Yeah, I mean, that, if, that's if if you hear the unedited version, I'm like, so this is a thing and this is how it works. Is that right? And then Peter's like, yeah, I think it is. But is it this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe it is. And then we carry on. So the whole thing was very heavily edited, but in an extremely professional kind of way. And yeah, it was a huge amount of fun because we talked to everyone from archaeologist. We had an artist. We had a musician. 
we had, uh, what's it called, actuaries. We had a couple of actuaries of different types because apparently there are loads of different kinds of actuaries, uh, which no one really knows what actuaries are. So it was quite a nice public service to actually explain what that is. We had like engineers. We had someone who worked at CERN doing Large Hadron Collider stuff. We just had literally anything and everything. And oh, we did a guy who writes computer games for the BBC children's website. Uh, and there, there were just some fantastic stories, people's like ways into those careers. It was interesting to find out. And also just the amount of maths that they use day to day. And they gave some examples of the kind of maths that they do, which we sort of tied into the theme of the episode. Uh, and we got answers ranging from, yes, I did further maths and it was really helpful and I'm really glad I did it and everyone should do it, through to a guy who said, yeah, I didn't even do A-level maths, but I really wish I had because I use it all the time and I've had to basically teach myself all of that stuff in order to do my job. Uh, so if I'd done it at A-level, that would have been really great. So hopefully it's something teachers can use to, because all the episodes are about half an hour long. We deliberately kept them quite sort of compact uh, that teachers can use to either play to kids in the class or they can recommend the kids listen to them after class just to give them sort of a flavor of what's out there. Because there are so many jobs that people do where maths is basically a huge part of it and not even that you would expect. Uh, so like the archaeologist that we talked to, she said that when she went to uni to study archaeology, she was like, hey, this is maths. Like oh, a lot of what I'm doing here is maths and maths analysis and data collection and and that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, she loves it and she's fine with that. But she can imagine that people would be quite surprised to find out that she does so much maths in her job. Uh, it, and it is a legitimately interesting and good show. I listen to all of the episodes and and like I, I feel I feel weird plugging something that's not mine. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try here. <laughs> but everyone yeah. should should go listen uh, as soon as they're done with this show and any other episodes of, of this show. And of relatively prime and math maths. Any any other show that I'm on, listen to all of those first, but then then definitely give further uh, taking maths further a listen. Yeah. Is that is that how I'm supposed to do plugs? I'm really bad at this. Yeah. No, that works. <laughs> that, that just yeah, just about works. Do you want to give the website or? Oh yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> so it's at, it's at furthermaths.org.uk/podcasts. Uh, so the the further math support program they do a lot of work in the UK not just uh, supporting people who want to study further maths they also provide tuition so if your school doesn't offer it as an option they'll provide a tutor to come and do it with you uh, they also run a lot of events for kids uh, younger than the age where they would do it to try and inc encourage them to do it so like they do a huge amount of work popularizing maths in the UK and I really like them and I'm really glad that they invited me to do a podcast uh, uh, speaking of other uh, URLs we can give out it seems like there's one called think-maths.co.uk that you have something to do with yeah that's that's uh, essentially my my job uh, which is a little bit scary I, I've, I've sort of been part freelance and part sort of doing various different projects at the same time so think maths is the closest thing I have to an actual job uh, and that is uh, an organization it's a, it's, a, it's sort of a company but it's actually three people uh, which is me and Matt Parker and we also have a PhD student no she's a postdoc now called uh, Flo who does fluid dynamics genuinely called flow and we have like an office and we go into schools and we do talks about maths uh, and it's just fantastic because it's a great way to like I, I don't have to do all of the booking stuff I can just turn up and talk about maths which is fantastic for me but also you know we, we go all over the country going into schools we do workshops we do hands-on stuff we do things at science festivals just anything is fantastic it's really good there's a couple of projects that I know that you've done with them in particularly with uh, Matt Parker. Uh, the first one I'd like to ask you about is the domino computer. So how do you build a computer out of dominoes? That is a very good question. I 
I, I still not completely sure. No, <laughs> what what we essentially did was we built uh, what's called a binary adder, which is essentially what like one of the basic things that computers boil down to, because all computers are really doing is processing binary numbers and adding them together uh, in different ways. So if you know anything about logic gates, you can start with a very simple logic gate, so something like an OR gate, where if you send, I don't, I don't know what happens in a computer, but I guess if you activate uh, one of the inputs, the output will be activated. Uh, if you activate the other input, it will be activated, activating the output. And if you activate both, in the case of an OR gate, it would be, yeah, it would, it would also activate the output. Or you can have an exclusive OR where it wouldn't do if you activate the both. So you kind of got these simple circuits. And in a computer, these would be made out of wires and they would have electricity running through them and kind of on and off would be high and low voltage in the wire. But in the case of dominoes, you can still send a signal through a chain of dominoes. It's a very one-way thing. So you, you kind of encourage the first domino to be in the on position, i.e. lying down, uh, and that will encourage the next domino and so on. Kind of like a domino effect, in fact. <laughs> uh, and it will it will kind of send a signal through. And it's, it's, it's slightly different to an electrical signal in that, yes, you can only do it once before you have to go back and set all the dominoes again. But you can basically use the same idea to construct these circuits and you have to design your gates quite carefully and in fact the design uh, for a domino computer that we had uh, so matt basically discovered that you could do this and he played around with it for a little while and he worked out a way of constructing these logic gates and putting them together and then he gave uh, me and a few of my mathematical friends we had a, a whole afternoon where we sat down and hashed out how we would actually make this into a practical thing and we worked out a design for a three or four or five digit adder. Basically, you can keep adding digits on the end if you've got more dominoes and more space, but you essentially have a, a sort of section of the machine for each of the binary digits. You put in a set of inputs, so you'd have two numbers and you'd set each digit of the two inputs separately, and then it gives you an output. And the way that we ended up working it was that we had a timing thing that ran along the bottom which was just a big wiggly long chain of dominoes, which set off each of the section, the sections of the computer one at a time uh, to make sure that everything had time to get through and all the signals had time to get through before the next bit. Uh, and we, yeah, we sort of, we wanted to do something for Manchester Science Festival because Manchester Science Festival invited Matt to come and do an event. It was in 2012 uh, that we actually did it. So we organized a practice weekend beforehand where we got some people together and just literally for the first time ever tried putting these dominoes together. We sort of did a bit of it and it didn't really work, but we were like, oh, we're ready now. And then on the actual weekend of the build, uh, we, took, we had about sort of 15 or 20 people building it. We were all very, very nervous of knocking things over. We kind of sectioned off this area of floor. It was actually, thankfully, a really good floor for it because it was flat sort of tile, tiled floor with very, very small gaps in between the tiles. So if it had been uneven or soft or anything like that, it wouldn't have worked at all. But we had this beautiful floor and we spent something like six hours building a three-digit binary adder, which was literally, it was about kind of three or four meters square. We had people watching us all day. There were literally people sat there just watching to see if we were going to mess it up and knock bits over, which we frequently did. And just occasionally you'd hear a run of dominoes start going. You're like, that's not supposed to be happening. Uh, and it's it really puts your nerves on edge. It became really kind of tense towards the end because we'd as we went on, we left gaps and then we gradually filled in the gaps so that each time you were filling in a gap, there was more jeopardy. There was more of a thing to actually ruin if you did it wrong. And eventually we managed to get the whole thing finished. We had a huge crowd of people watching. We videoed the whole thing. And on the Saturday we ran, basically it was adding together two three-digit numbers to give a four-digit number, which we successfully did. 
we added together, I think it was four and six, and we got ten. Or as some people pointed out, we got two plus eight, which <laughs> is what happens when you add things in binary. You get, you know, you get a binary output, which you then have to convert into decimal in your head. But we did on the Sunday, we tried to scale it up. So we did a four digit two four-digit inputs giving a five-digit output, which didn't work quite as well. I think we did three plus nine and got 30. But again, it took us several hours to set up. The problems that we had were quite nice in that they were both illustrative of exactly how these things can go wrong. So we had we had a little bit of signal bleed, which is something that happens in real circuits. So we essentially, we tried to do the whole thing like more detailed in the same amount of space because we didn't have a bigger area. We tried to do all of the circuitry for the one extra digit, but in the same amount of space. So everything was slightly closer together. So we had one chain of dominoes, which as it went around the corner, kind of spilled out and knocked into a chain nearby that wasn't meant to be falling uh, and caused an, like an extra little spill. And that set off a thing and caused an extra digit to come through, which was both frustrating, but also a really nice example of how, when you scale down circuits in real life, when you look at trying to fit more processing power on the same size of chip, you do end up with this kind of problem and you have to design your circuits very carefully. We also had a timing issue at one point. So there was a chain that was meant to come through and stop one other chain before it got through. And in fact, if you watch it on the video, it's literally three or four dominoes away when it gets through, which is very frustrating. And we did spend a lot of time kind of counting the timing chains to make sure they had more dominoes in them than the thing that they were meant to be slower than. But obviously, it was the end of the second day. We were all exhausted. We were trying to do this. We didn't even have any extra dominoes. So I think we maybe used almost all of the dominoes on the second day as well. So if we'd had more dominoes and a bit more time and more concentration, we might have been able to avoid that. But again, that was quite a nice example of the kind of thing that can go wrong. So it was a good sort of teaching outcome. And we put together this video. There's a guy called Jonathan Sanderson who does uh, TV and kind of a lot of science communication video work. And he came and helped us and made this fantastic video. It's actually quite long. It's about 20 minutes long, but he's done such a brilliant job of it. And it basically shows the whole process, but also really gets that feeling of, of nervousness and tension that was building throughout the weekend that we were like, all right, well, we finished building this thing. It's just taken us six hours. If someone like chucks a bottle, like an empty plastic bottle over the top of the crowd into the middle of this, that's it. That's the whole day's work <laughs> ruined. Like we were, we were very pleased that everyone in Manchester is lovely and they were all just there to watch and support us and no one was there to be a jerk. And we did fantastically well. It was such a brilliant weekend. I, I maintain that that is basically one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Uh, and at the end of that weekend, we were all completely wiped, but we were just so proud that we'd done this ridiculous thing. Uh, and it was it was a really nice weekend. And a lot of people, I think, came along and found out a little bit about computers that they didn't already know. Like we had a little bit at the side where we had some worksheets and people could play with dominoes themselves and make their own little logic gates and things. But we were also just talking to people and saying, like, do you know what we're trying to do here. Do you know what this is illustrating? This is basically the process that computers do, but on a very small scale and obviously very, very much faster than this. And my favorite moment was there was a kid and I said, do you know how computers work? And he said, yes, you move the mouse and the pointer moves on the screen. <laughs> I was like, oh, you do know how computers work. Good. That is literally all you need to know for the rest of your life. But if you want some extra stuff, stick around because we'll tell you how computers actually work, which you probably won't need to know, but you will love it. Uh, and that, that's, I think a lot of people really enjoyed kind of finding out a bit of stuff that they didn't really need to know. Uh, and probably some of them maybe will if they go on to be computer engineers, but a lot of people will engage with computers in their own way. Uh, and I, 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 
personally like to build them out of dominoes. Well, I this I mean that was a, a very impressive uh, project in general, but it was just in in one room in one place, and clearly that wasn't enough for you because the next big project uh, that that you were a part of that I know of uh, involved in trying to build a fractal across the entire world. Yeah, this was uh, yeah. So essentially, part of my job in working for Think Maths is that Matt will occasionally have stupid ideas, and he would turn around <laughs> to me and say make this a thing and i'm like yes sir and then i have to make it a thing so Matt uh, I, a- I by the way i'm going to cut that clip out and send him that <laughs> he, he will freely admit to that that is like <laughs> on my job description um but he he was at the gathering for gardener conference which is this huge recreational maths conference uh, and he was talking to a person called laura talman who is a mathematician can't remember which uni she's based at but she is uh or has been mathematician in residence at the MoMath Museum of Math in New York and she was very excited about this and she wanted to do something cool because she was there running different public engagement things and doing various maths things at this museum and that they were just chatting about stuff and she had some uh, mega sponges some 3d printed fractals they're a shape of a cube if you can imagine like a Rubik's cube split into 27 smaller cubes with the middle sections pushed out. And then each of the smaller cubes has the same thing done to that and each of the smaller cubes and so on. So you end up with this thing that looks like a cube with a hole through it, made up of cubes with a hole through it, made up of cubes with a hole through it and getting smaller and smaller forever. And it's a beautiful little fractal. It's got nice, nice properties, fractal dimension of about 2.7. If anyone's, you know, making note of these things. Uh, it's it's one of those things that's got infinite surface area, but zero volume. And it's it's quite a nice, simple fractal to construct. Uh, and in fact, I think Matt had seen me playing around with a little origami technique where you take six bits of card, you fold them into a square with two tabs on each side, uh, with, with one tab on, each, tab on each side, I guess, two tabs, one on each side. Uh, and then you can put six of them together into a cube that the kind of the tabs stick out on the outside. And then you can use those tabs to join together two cubes. So if you get 20 of these, you can put them together into like a cube with the hole through the middle. And if you get 20 of those, you can put those together and then you get 20 of those and put those together and so on. And um, this was, I think I'd had a play with it before and I'd done various bits of things. And one of the things that Matt had suggested was if I printed up each of these cards with sort of smaller and smaller levels of mega sponge detail, which I guess there's like a 2D equivalent of it called a Sapinski carpet, which is like a square with a hole in the middle and so on. Uh, and if you print that on the outside, it kind of looks like you've got the next levels of Menga Sponge. And Laura thought this was such a brilliant idea. And she's like, well, you know, we should do this. And I think at the same time, they'd also been talking about a project that someone had done where they tried to make some kind of a polyhedron. I can't remember whether it was a cube or something, but by getting people to stand at the appropriate places around the world to be the vertices... So they had people in in all these different places around the world that like some of them had got on a boat and gone to the middle of the ocean to be in the right place to kind of make a global octahedron or whatever it was. Uh, And they were saying that's quite a nice idea. Hey, do you reckon we could do a manga sponge? Because building a a manga sponge is not a trivial amount of effort. And uh, I'd built like level two manga sponge, which is sort of about a meter cubed with a a workshop with a, a bunch of people in a whole day. But they were saying, well, if we built 20 of those, that would be like a level three manga sponge. And level three manga sponge is about a meter and a half. Yeah, it's about a meter and a half tall. It's about 90 kilograms if you make it out of card. It contains about 50,000 cards plus another 20,000 covering the outside. Uh, and, you know, they were saying, well, you know, if we could get 20 of those... And Matt came to me and I was like, Matt, that is ridiculous. This huh. would take This would take 1.3 million pieces of card... It would take 
hundreds of people thousands of hours of work and Matt was like just you know make it happen and I was like oh okay so <laughs> so we basically we did this so we got uh, Queen Mary University of London which is where Matt's based provided us with some sponsor money which was very very nice of them because literally we couldn't have done it without them Laura was based in New York and she was coordinating the kind of US builds we were based in the UK and we had a bunch of them in the UK and then we literally just put a call out and said who's an idiot like who's up for doing this this is going to be great so we ended up with because the goal was to get 20. We had something like 20 or 30 locations on board, but some of them realized what they just agreed to do and gradually <laughs> sort of downgraded what they were prepared to do and dropped out. But eventually uh, we had kind of, I think there were 23 locations attempting a full-size build. And we we got all the cards printed up and cut out. We shipped them out to different places. Some people used like reused recycled business cards and train tickets and things to build the internal structure and then covered it on the outside, which was really great because that saved uh, a bit of resources and is probably eco something, I don't know. But also we had, uh, so we had a, a bunch in America. We had quite a few in the UK. We've got one in Spain, one in Finland, one in Canada. Oh, maybe, yeah, no, one in Canada, one in New Zealand, which is a friend of mine who used to live in Manchester but moved home to New Zealand. And I was like, do maths in New Zealand. So she's doing that. And a few other different places. And we had other places building less ambitious things. So if you wanted to, you could just build a little sponge out of 20 cubes and send us a picture of it. We had some people building the kind of the the half a meter big level two cubes, which is, I say, it's a a decent amount of work for a group of people over the course of a day or an afternoon. Uh, And some places like schools and things just did that. And then we had these main builds where we were building level three. Uh, The one in Manchester, we we spent a whole weekend on it and we didn't quite finish it. So I came in on the Monday and Tuesday to finish it off. But we literally had people coming in all day, making a little cube, maybe signing their name on it and chucking it in a box. And then we had a team that were assembling those together we had various schools and different organizations around Manchester came and built parts of it and brought them in. It just, it was, it was huge. And it was so much fun. Like people had so much fun with it because it's really nice sort of repetitive activity. You know, that kind of the sort of the, the stuff that if you were getting paid to do it, you'd be like, this is a terrible job but because you're doing it for like for fun. It's actually brilliant. And like, it's, you know, the, the sort of therapeutic, calming, relaxing, repetitive sort of hand movement activity uh, and it and it's also really cool to see the whole thing taking shape uh, and again people would come in and we would talk to them about fractals and what fractals are we had loads of posters and information um, another thing that we did was we actually did video links with the other builds so we tried to sort of make them all try and finish at the same time although practically we had a few that took a little bit longer than that but the hope was that there were quite a few that were finished by the time we would finish ours. So over the course of that weekend, we did various sort of video hangouts things. Technology was against us. We did have a meeting with a person from Google who helped us to set up the video links. But then in practice, a lot of people were like, how do I get in? I don't know. Uh, and we couldn't get like a few of them online, which was a real shame. But we did manage to connect Manchester and New York quite a few times over the course of the weekend. And then a few others called in. So Finland called in. There's a school in Cumbria that was doing one that called in uh, and a, f- a bunch of other places that we managed to just have a little chat and say, hi, how's it going? They were like, oh, here's our mango sponge. And literally, uh, so this was the, the, the main build was in like October. 
again for Manchester Science Festival, who are fantastic and will literally put up with us doing any kind of ridiculous maths project. I think they want us to do another one because uh, we did one in 2012 and this was in 2014. So they actually want us to do something for 2016. Uh, we have a couple of ideas, but we'll, you know, we're not going to spread, you know, we're not going to spread any rumours yet about what it will be. But yeah, Manchester Science Festival kind of hosted us and, and brought in all of these people. Uh, and literally by Christmas, we had... 20 full level three mega sponges equivalent if you add up all of the smaller ones so it was great because before christmas we could do this announcement that was like we have built the global level four mega sponge and i love the fact that because if we'd had 20 level threes that would have been nice but i love the fact that we had like 17 level threes a whole bunch of twos and a few ones and the fact that it added up to a level four and that everyone's contribution was sort of part of that was really really nice that i mean that is fascinating uh that 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 all that all came off uh and uh, we are we're running a little a little long on time here so i'm gonna i'm gonna skip past uh, other questions i have about the mega sponge to the thing that i actually wanted to talk to you about the most ever since i found out that you were doing this and this was uh, something you did for a couple of weeks last month uh at the university of greenwich you uh were at the stephen lawrence Stephen lawrence gallery as the mathematician in residence yeah th- that was yeah <laughs> yeah, I, I just I want to know about this. It sounds fascinating and wonderful. And I was very, very jealous that you got to do it. Yeah, I was approached by uh, the university. So they have various different buildings on campus and they've just got this new building that was previously, I think, just the School of Architecture. But they've now added in a bunch of other departments and it's got an art gallery in it, which is essentially the university's art gallery. And about the same time, they've also just launched a new math centre at the University of Greenwich and they wanted to do stuff to promote the math centre. So they had various things going on in the math centre in various places. But what they wanted to do was really get to the rest of the uni with it. So they wanted to do something in the art gallery to tie in with this launch. So they, they wanted a mathematician to be in residence in the art gallery. And it was such a brilliant project because they didn't really know what that meant. Like I said, <laughs> like what, what kind of thing do you want? And they were like, we're not really sure we just want you to do some maths in an art gallery and I was like okay I will do that Uh, and I had this fantastic sort of brainstorm where I was thinking right well what's what's this you know because there's so much maths art and there's so much arty maths there's quite a lot of things I could do with that brief so I kind of picked out some of my favorite things they also wanted me to do some stuff that was quite hands-on and interactive so I kind of had that in mind and I essentially picked out mathematics that's quite visual which I guess works in an art gallery. So I had a whole bit on fractals. I had uh, various different pictures of fractals. We got some 3D printed fractals uh, for people to pick up and play with. We also were building, because this is a hobby of mine now, it turns out, we were building a fractal uh, out of card, which was not a manga sponge this time, but a Sapinski tetrahedron which is the sort of tetrahedron made out of smaller tetrahedra, made out of smaller tetrahedra, which we were making out of little cardboard things and taping them together. And again, they were printed up with the pattern of the smaller and smaller ones. So it looked very cool. We had a bit about coloring problems and topology. So I had people drawing on mugs with felt pens. I had uh, people doing flat, sad, two-dimensional, two-dimensional so boring, but we had people doing two-dimensional sketches that were, made out of a single closed loop or um, a collection of closed loops. And if you do that, it turns out they're too colorable. So we had two colors, uh, or we had had a bunch of colors, but people could color things in with two colors. And we made like a wall of those. Like when you stick stick things on the fridge because you're proud of them. I was proud of every single one. They were beautiful. We also had a whole bit on tilings and patterns. So I got uh, Edmund Harris, who's a, a mathematical artist, had recently been doing some other stuff with me. And, and from that, we ended up with a set of 
essentially designs patterns, which were the 17 wallpaper groups. So we mounted those full size on the wall and they looked absolutely amazing in frames, basically filled one of the walls and people would come and stare at those for hours. Um, I also worked a lot with some of the students at Greenwich. So there's a, a maths guy who's a researcher there who basically came to me and said, I've got an idea. Can I do random walks with random numbers? And he produced these fantastic graphics where he had uh, a line which started out purple and then went through the whole rainbow all the way to red. Uh, and as it moved, it essentially took a sequence of digits and used them to determine the direction it moved in and the distance it moved at each stage. So you ended up with these really crinkly, wiggly line things. But they looked very different if you took different sources of data. So if you took generally random numbers, it would look one way. And if you took things that were pseudo random or things that weren't random at all, you'd end up with a lot more structure in it. And you could visually see the difference between those things which was really cool. I also had a little bit about data representation and I also had a thing on Benford's law where I had a little computer and it was asking people questions and they were putting in bits of data and it was displaying a, a graph of, or bar chart, I guess, of the first digits of all the data that had been put in. And the questions that I picked were ones which obey this distribution called Benford's law, where the first digit being one is much more likely than the first digit being nine. And you get this nice curve. And over the course of the two weeks I was there, it gradually got more and more like a Benford's distribution as we added in more data, which was fantastic. I, I was totally not sure that would work, but it actually did, uh, which was really nice. And then I also had some some videos and animations from the, the guys at Greenwich that do mathematical modeling. So I had like simulations that they'd done. They do a lot of stuff with crowd simulations and people moving around. There was some fluid dynamics stuff, a bunch of other kind of really cool, like just visual representations of maths. Uh, and I also, the final thing I had was a, a massive blackboard. Because uh, for me, the way that mathematicians do maths on a blackboard is quite a visual beautiful thing you know like a blackboard full of maths is quite a pretty thing to look at so I had a blackboard there for people to play with but also prior to the exhibit I'd sent that blackboard into the maths department and told people to just maths on it and then we took some photos and they were framed up in the gallery as well uh, so like it was it was such a, an effort to put the whole thing together and I was in residence literally in the gallery for the whole two weeks people could come in and talk to me people did come in and ask me maths questions which was fab because I had a blackboard and I could just go and uh, explain stuff to them and also people came in and interacted with the stuff and had a really good time with it as well. So it was, it was a huge fun thing to do uh, and very, very weird. But I, I really hope that it inspires them to do other stuff because they were saying they might now have like a physicist in residence or a biologist in residence and try out different things like that. Because it is a nice thing to do to play around with with the idea of like what people think of an art gallery and what people think of maths. That sounds fascinating. I wish I would have been able to go out and see it. But sadly, you know, there's an ocean and, and other things involved. One of the best uh, things that happened in the gallery was there was a bunch of teachers came in and they were actually from Texas. Uh, and they were over on holiday, but doing teacher training. So they're having a two week teacher training holiday in, in England. And they were basically walking around that afternoon. Their brief had been to look for examples of maths in the world around them. And the person <laughs> leading the group was like, oh, my God, we're in here. Uh, and they came in. They stayed for like an hour and a half uh, and just did everything. And it was fantastic. They had so much fun. Uh, we're, we're essentially out of time here, which means that uh, we can't talk uh, that much about Mass Jam. A number file, which you've appeared on, the Aperiodical, aperiodical.com. Carnival of Mathematics. Puzzle Bomb, Manchester Girl Geeks, Maths Busking, the work you've done in theater. Uh, you've done all of these other things that we just don't have time to cover. Uh, you can find out more about that by going to your website, katiesteckles.co.uk. 
uh, and following you at Stex on Twitter, I believe. Yeah. And uh, is there is there anything else you would like like to add before before the end of this episode? Uh, oh, I don't know. I'm I'm always looking for new stuff to do. Like I am mad enough to do things like be in residence in an art gallery. So if anyone's looking for a mathematician that doesn't care how ridiculous their suggestions are i'm totally up for listening to your suggestions yeah uh, uh katie seckles at gmail.com right that that's yes. where everyone should yeah. send their send their suggestions definitely yeah hey uh well katie thank you so much for uh giving me your time on strongly connected components today thanks thanks for having me And that is all the time that we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to find out more about Katie Steckles and her work, head on over to acmescience.com where you will find a blog post with a bunch of links to, say, Thick Math and her Twitter and her personal account uh, where you can find out about how to send her your crazy mathematical ideas, which she apparently wants to help you achieve. So do that. Uh, Katie is, is really great. I have actually known her for quite a while and she's one of the best out there. Uh, if you have any feedback about the show, about me, if you want to suggest some guests, anything like that, send me an email. Do it. It's fun. I, I'll respond. Ask anyone who sent me an email. I'll, I'll respond. I'm, I'm good at good about that usually. It might take me a little bit of time, but I, I, I do get back to you. That's Samuel at acmescience.com. That's literally my personal email account. I don't give any like websites that account. Like I'm giving it to you guys so that you can email me and I can email you back and we'll become like math email friends, which which would be great, right? Right? Come on, do it. The music that I'm talking over right now and I talked over in the beginning of the show is from Lowercase N. You can find them at SoundCloud and at Bandcamp. They're also really great and I love being able to mix up a bunch of different music and let you listen to all of it because I do love it all. Um, this show, as always, is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License, so feel free to remix my voice and my interviewees' voices as long as you give credit to acmescience.com and strongly connected components and, you know, probably say exactly who we are. And I think that is just about it. And not just because I'm coming to the end of this song. But really, head on over to acmescience.com. Oh, and listen to the other half, our new show, which is great. You should listen to it. Maybe, you know, listen to all of the shows. Relatively Prime, Science Sparring Society. You know what? Go crazy, guys. Go crazy. And as always, have a math-terrific week.